Hello, everyone. I am Carla Jakubovic, hostess of the Swiss Learning Podcast, and thanks for listening. Swiss Learning represents 13 prestigious schools in Switzerland, and they're experts at finding the right fit for each student. On this podcast, we will showcase alumni from each one of these schools to share their success stories and insights with you. Today, we're honored to welcome Princess Alia Alsanusi, an alumna from Eglon College. Alia, may I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Thank you so much. It's really, it's really special to be with you all and uh, have this moment to remember some really incredible moments that I had at Egnon. Um, I was there from 1998 to 2000. Uh, I was in Chanticleer. So for those of you who know the houses. And from Egnon, I went to Brown and then from Brown moved to London. And I work in the art world and my life has taken me back to Switzerland. So I work for Art Basel amongst other institutions as a cultural strategist, uh, really focusing on patronage systems, on the ways in which the art world interacts with political systems in different sectors, including, for example, the Ministry of Saudi Arabia, Ministry of Culture, excuse me, of Saudi Arabia. And always based in London, but until, you know, March 11th, traveling a lot. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> Wonderful. We're so excited to have you. Alia, how was your experience uh, living in Switzerland? What makes Switzerland so special? Well, for me, actually, I think it, it really predates my time being at school there. Um, you know, not to bore your readers, but you know, my kind of my family story was was very mixed, you know, around the world. Uh, I was born in Washington, D.C., but we lived in Egypt until I was about six years old, back and forth to Minnesota. My mother is American uh, from a small town in Minnesota and then went to university at McAllister, which for some of your listeners they may know is an incredibly international liberal arts college in Minneapolis. And while there, she met an incredible professor um, who is the uncle of Sia Armajani, who's a, a really well-renowned artist who just passed away, unfortunately, this year. But Professor Armajani was this kind of incredible figure who brought together so many disparate voices from the Middle East. And my mother was really taken with that idea. She moved to Egypt, uh, where uh, it was almost like the Libyan court in, uh, in exile was in Cairo, and met my father there. They you know, kind of moved around the world in their early years. And when I was born, we were in D.C., and then my mother and my father separated very early on, and my mother wanted to move back to Cairo. So we moved back to Cairo. Fast forward a little bit. My aunts had gone to to school in Switzerland. They had been back and forth to Geneva often. My mother has really warm memories of Toblerone, of course, <laughs> on her trips. That's a, I think that's like a really standard travel travel memory for many people in the 70s and 80s. And, uh, and, and we just had always these really affectionate memories of time, our time in Switzerland. Then I moved with my mother to Southern California when I was six years old. And yet I'd still go back to Switzerland. My grandmother ended up settling there. Um, so somehow like a point of gravity for our family really was, uh, especially Geneva um, and Switzerland. I then, I don't think I told you this and I, do, I actually, I don't even know if I've told uh, the Egnon team this, but I had gone to summer school at the Collège du Léman. So CDL, mm -hmm. I think as many people know it. Uh, and I did my a summer program there um, I want to say probably when I was 12, 13 years old. I can't quite remember. 
and that was a really wonderful summer for me. I wasn't boarding. I was going back and forth to my grandmother's house. So my grandmother was in, in Geneva. And it was just a really great day school program where it introduced me to the idea of boarding. And of course, because many of the students that were there were boarding and obviously incredibly international. And then going to Egnall. So having this like very warm experience, you know, throughout my early years of Switzerland. And then of course, now somehow my life has kind of rotated full circle back to Switzerland, <laughs> uh, working uh, for a, a Swiss company. So working for Art Basel, uh, the parent company Message Fights uh, based uh, in Basel. And, you know, having this kind of whole other side of, of being in Switzerland and really just warm and wonderful sentiment for me in my household and in my family and for myself of my Swiss experiences. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, it's nice that you mentioned that you went to summer camp there uh, at CDL prior to going to Eglon because I feel that that's the case for a lot of the students, that the summer camp uh, works as a little bit of a trial experience to see, you know, what the experience of being abroad in such an international and diverse environment is like. So um, I'm happy that you had a positive experience uh, with that. What are actually your favorite memories from Eglon? Could you share a fun anecdote with us? Well, there are so many. I don't know if I'm allowed to tell, I don't know if I'm allowed to tell all of them. We want to hear the good ones. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, well, so first of all, I actually went to Eglon thinking I might only be there for a year. I was, you know, as, as much as, of course, I traveled often, especially between my parents. So my mother living in California, my father living in Europe, you know, I was used to that shuffling back and forth and on my own. I was used to being on an airplane by myself, you know, since the age of six, and, but at the same time, living fully abroad, I was, you know, of course, I think a lot of people are slightly nervous. So thinking, okay, I'm going to go for a year, but I could stay for two years. Maybe I'll go back. And my mother always laughs that she stayed for an extra two days in town in Villar uh, while I, you know, I first got settled in. In those first two days, you know, I call her all the time. Of course, it was, you know, phones were, it was basically right when cell phones, you know, were allowed, but you only could only have a phone, you know, I think maybe an hour a day or something. And I was so homesick for my mom. And then literally the second she left town, she said that that was it. <laughs> so it was almost that idea of just having her close, but not close. Uh, and I mean, I'm actually, my, and my whole family dropped me off at school. My mom, my, uh, my stepmother, who's a, like, like my second mother, my father and my brother. But uh, my mother stayed, you know, just that extra couple of days, like keep mommy close. Um, so that was, I think, my first memory where I knew and where my mother says she knew I was happy and she knew I you know, was comfortable. She knew it was going to be a rewarding and kind of wonderful experience for me. That's awesome. Alia, one of the common denominators that boarding students uh, share is that their children or grandchildren of very successful parents, which often means they feel tremendous pressure to become just as successful. Did you ever feel pressure to succeed? My mother had always had this kind of mantra for me where I had to do my best. And as long as she knew and I knew that I had done my best, she would be proud of me. And it was always that question of, okay, you can get a B if you know you did your best. But if you know you didn't work hard, then you better have gotten an A. So 
It's almost this idea of guilt. You know, I think that a lot of cultures <laughs> share it. It's a, you know, they call it Catholic guilt. They call it Jewish guilt. They, you know, it, you know, it's, it, it's kind of a common denominator of, of many different cultures. But for my mother, it was really about that. It was about doing your best and making sure you were proud of yourself. And in, actually in my household growing up, you know, I, I didn't really have a curfew. I didn't have any kind of really strict rules. It was always that as long as she asked me where I was, what was I doing? If I was proud to say and be truthful, then that was okay. But if I was going to lie or I was not going to be truthful, then that was the problem. And I like how that how that speaks of a trust system that the two of you had, not only with the grades, but just with, you know, overall lifestyle. Exactly. And I think that then really served me well going to Egmont, uh, you know, that, of course, you know, we lived within a very regimented system. But, you know, kids can always get away with, you know, different things. But it was really important to my mother that, you know, especially Egno is quite a, you know, kind of structured system um, within, you know, the kind of the idea of, of boarding school. And yes, of course, go and have fun and be with your friends, but you also have to know when to study and, you know, when to have fun and when, you know, you can be doing certain things. And I think a lot of growing up uh, is figuring out what are your limits, you know, how far you can go in those limits and, and, And what are your own limits, really, I think, even not just what is imposed upon you. I love that. Um, was there something you learned in school that set you on this path? Do you recall at what point you figured out what career you wanted to pursue? Well, I think actually my two years at Egnall were really formative for me in the sense that they allowed me to be really comfortable with who I am. They allowed me to be able to say I am half American half Libyan, you know, instead of, you know, thinking that, you know, I was in, in, in San Diego and I was at this incredible uh, prep school there called the Bishop School, you know, one of the best in the country, you know, kind of an incredible, um, you know, academic and, and, uh, and, and also very athletic and, you know, but everyone somewhat international, maybe a little bit more now, but quite that typical Southern California, small community in San Diego, you know, maybe go on a European vacation, but not, necessarily coming from my background where my father lived in Europe my whole life. You know, I was back and forth. I mean, I was, you know, had to go see him on a plane multiple times a year. Um, and to be able to go to Egnall, and I, I recommend for anyone listening to look up this article, I've actually put it on my LinkedIn, which I think, you know, you're going to give the information at the end, but it's um, in the New York Times uh, just a few weeks ago, about third culture kids. And it's how third culture kids, you know, kind of grow up in this very rarefied world. And as you said, often parents who are very successful or um, parents who live in a, in a kind of rarefied elite, whether it be intellectual or financial. And that third culture kids have certain qualities that unite them. Um, much of it is empathy, actually. Uh, and I think that that is something that I learned in my family, but also that I learned at Egmont. Egnall, you know, has the set of ideals, um, you know, kindness and really being true to, you know, of course, it started off as a Christian school. And I mean, it, it still has Christian roots and values. But uh, of course, you know, I, I was raised Muslim. Um, and to have that idea of empathy and kindness and thinking about fellow humanity Uh, and thinking about, you know, how social justice, for example, which is, a, you know, a huge theme for my generation, um, how they translate into your everyday life. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. And you're, you're making me think of my days in school in Switzerland. And I think you're absolutely right. We just developed such a strong bond for the reasons that you just mentioned that uh, yeah. it, it, it really lasts a lifetime. I'm still in touch with my with my friends from school. Absolutely. Me too. Alia, I don't anticipate having the opportunity to ask this question to many other guests. And I think our students could also be curious to know, what role does having a princess title play in your day-to-day -day life? Well, it makes getting restaurant reservations a lot easier. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, it's actually, it's this sense of being very aware of my family history. And I actually think that I'm not sure what it would be like to be, uh, you know, kind of, be actively in Libya right now. But the fact of the matter is that my family was, you know, sent into exile in 1969. So my burden, and not in a way that I'm asking anyone to feel sorry for me, but the burden of how I try to conduct my life and, and you know, really be uh, a proud member of my family is to reflect on the hardships that actually many of my family members have. I'm lucky in that I was raised, you know, basically almost you know, this American Egyptian Libyan little girl without that sense of anything lost. But at the same time, my family and I think my father and his siblings, you know, they went from being, you know, the, you know, the royal family of their country to then being, you know, thrown into exile around the world and not having that sense of home. So I actually think that being at Egnon, being in a boarding school, you know, for me was that ability to almost reclaim that sense of home. And, you know, the, this kind of like forlorn or, or um, really this, this idea of, you know, kind of paradise lost, I guess, what, uh, you know, what that generation must have thought. For me, it's really just trying to be a really upstanding member of, of my family. And, you know, I mean, there's family squabbles and, and all sorts of things that happen. And I think so much of it is just because this like sense of hopelessness or, especially, you know, when there was such a moment of hope in Libya with the revolution, and now it's again, you know, descended in, into, into chaos. And, you know, we still have a, a couple of family members there. Uh, I think that one just thinks, okay, well, I've had the opportunity to live my life the way I've lived it. And I need to be really lucky, but I also need to be grateful. Um, you know, and I think gratefulness is to me a really key word, especially of this moment in this year, um, when so many have lost so much. And Frankly, actually, the title I'm, I'm more proud of is probably doctor, uh, <laughs> as much as, of course, I'm proud of my family, but I, um, I earned my PhD last year. So, so that was another, another title to add. You've managed to make it such a beautiful journey. Um, what would you say is your proudest moment as senior advisor to the Ministry of Culture for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia? Well, we have announced the Biennale, which is going to be the Adiria Biennale. And I think imminently this coming week or so, we'll be announcing the curator who's a dear friend and who's somebody who I brought into, into the project. And I think somebody who just so understands this moment of change, this moment of hope. Um, he's a, an American, but living in China. Some of you who may know this person, they'll figure it out right away. Uh, but you know, really understands um, this idea of a, a moment of change in a country, you know, and, and as we saw in China after the Cultural Revolution, uh, they also live that moment and are living that moment in this really hopeful way. And Saudi is also, and I think that that needs to be recognized and celebrated. So I'm really looking forward to that. And uh, 
you know, bringing actually funnily, my most proud moments probably in my life are bringing together the different parts of my world. So, you know, when Mark Spiegler, the global director of our Basel came to Saudi for 2139, uh, that was an incredible time when, you know, I, you know, kind of was able to have some of my best friends join the global patrons council at our Basel. Um, my best friend from college was actually the reason I set out um, on the art world. Uh, the two of them was Nora Felbaum, a very proud Swiss miss um, who lives in Basel uh, and now is the CEO of Vitra. And then my other dear and best friend, Dana Faruqi, uh, who is also a kind of global patron um, in the art world. So I think the, the, when my worlds collide is when I'm the happiest. That's awesome. And it sounds like it's happened a few times. So a lot of moments worth celebrating. And besides your advisory role, you also represent Art Basel for the UK and Middle East, and you sit on numerous, numerous boards. Could yeah. you describe what a typical day looks like for you? Well, a typical pre-COVID day would like require, you know, waking up. I try I go through periods of like wanting to do my workouts really like first thing and like, you know, trekking up to, I, I go to a, a class that really makes me extremely happy. Um, it's about a 45 minute walk through Hyde park. I go through my emails. I uh, do my phone calls and it's just a really lovely moment for me to, you know, just walk. I love to walk. I try to walk as much as I possibly can in London. Um, and so of course during COVID, it was a, a great moment to explore the city And, you know, I, I try to keep things quite consistent, you know, usually a one inbox system. I, I hate having multiple emails. So that's, uh, that's uh, email addresses. So that's a, that keeps me sane. And there is no typical day. I mean, it's often, you know, lunch out with um, an art world figure. So whether or not it's a friend or a collector or a patron or a museum director or, um, you know, another uh, kind of close associate in, in business, going to an opening usually in the evening. So I'll try to like work, you know, a solid couple hours uh, between lunch and an opening on my computer. I usually am at the arts club here in London, which is my office, uh, my home away from home. And then, you know, openings are generally anywhere between like five and 7 PM. So, you know, days are long. So I try to, to kind of always carve out a few hours of, of, of email time, which is, I guess that's my meditation time. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, uh, and then, you know, the evening spent, you know, really at galleries and, and seeing, you know, all that London has to offer and travel, you know, consists of a huge part of my life. Um, you know, my very last trip before, before lockdown was to, to Saudi, actually Switzerland, then Saudi, then Ghana. <laughs> so within three weeks before March 11th, I was, you know, bouncing around and then got back to London and we actually had an Art Basel uh, dinner Uh, that night, Warhol opened at the Tate. So Andy Warhol, it was a major show and it was so exciting. And I was actually touching things and they were this whole interactive artwork installation. And then we had a dinner and it was a celebration of our Basel and the art launch of the art market report with UBS, which um, UBS is, of course, you know, our kind of our, our main sponsor and really dear partner at our Basel. And then the world changed. <laughs> <laughs> Your day does sound long, but it does sound incredibly exciting at the same time. So. I find it so much fun. I find it, of course, you know, there are nights that, you know, it's like so exhausting. You wake up and you're like, oh my gosh. But, you know, you keep on going. And I just, I, I'm really, I, I love it. I love the art world. I think it means a lot. And as you said, I, I, I work in the art world, but I also am very uh, personally engaged in the art world through my various 
boards and advisory committees and, and uh, you know, kind of memberships. And I think that's also something that's really fun. And I'm able to share it with my loved ones. I don't know if it's been a self-selection of my best friends or just happens to be that like most of my dear friends are involved in arts and culture, but... <laughs> Hard to know which one comes first, right? And there's a lot of exciting things happening in Saudi right now. Giga developments are underway, like the Red Sea project, Amala. Uh, Actually, as I was doing research to prepare for our conversation, I read somewhere that Amala is the Arabic word for hope, which I thought was nice. How do you see this as an opportunity for Middle Eastern artists? Well, I think it's an incredible moment in that what we've seen, you know, I think really the the precursor of at least what I've been working on was with Art Dubai and what was happening in the UAE. Uh, I helped start Art Dubai and was, you know, the first member of the Board of Patrons, put that together, selection committee. So really the, the, the building blocks of an art fair, but was much more than just an art fair. It was about creating a platform for Middle Eastern art for a Western audience to understand, but also for the whole of the Middle East to really understand and appreciate, you know, especially Dubai being this kind of crossroads, you know, an expat community from around the world, but of course, you know, centered on many Iranians who have uh, spent their time there. Also many South Asians, of course, and Lebanese and and so many. Uh, And to see how Art Dubai was able to have that platform and to have that sense of responsibility to the community and also really to be a pivot point of growth. And of course, you know, within the UAE, you have the incredible work that happens in Sharjah, which was, you know, predated Art Dubai. And then of course the work that was announced, uh, you know, just after in Sadiat Island in Abu Dhabi, um, which was, you know, kind of that same year or maybe a year later uh, when, after Art Dubai started. And I think, you know, that all, you know, kind of culminates in, in this idea that art is something to be valued. Uh, the problem with arts and culture, I think that many people see is that, you know, it's called soft power, right? So it's it's very hard to measure. So then it's very hard for people to discount and just say, oh, it doesn't really matter. What really matters is putting food on the table. Yes, of course, putting food on the table for a family is incredibly important, but to also to have the sense of, of identity is very much a part of who you are and then how you're able to live your life. Uh, and I think, of course, the art world is seen as elitist, is seen as, you know, one of, of uh, you know, a, let's say a, an elite economic status also. But when you look at the impact that arts and culture has had on impoverished communities, I think especially when you look at the studies that happened in the U.S. after the uh, after the Great Depression with the FDRs, the WPA, the Work Progress Administration, the impact that had on the U.S. in like post-World War II growth. Um, when you look at the Arts Council, England has an incredible report on every pound spent on culture giving back anywhere between, you know, conservative estimate four pounds, higher estimate seven pounds to the economy. You know, I think these things are really important. I think Saudi has really understood that. And, you know, in some ways, it's probably really, uh, you know, lucky that it all came so much later because they're able to process all that information and then, you know, put it to uh, put it to good use uh, within the concept of the Ministry of Culture, uh, which, of course, I work with the Ministry of Culture. But, of course, um, our minister uh, is, you know, the, the chairman of um, the, our, the Royal Commission of Al-Adha um, and of many other you know projects in, in the country. So I think that when you see every uh, you know, every government entity now must have some, you know, kind of cultural commitment. 
I think you realize that, yes, of course, it's a wonderful thing, but it's also a really smart thing. Absolutely. No, I mean, we're definitely making progress. And I like how you mentioned that Art Dubai is more than just a show. It's a mm -hmm. milestone that helps pave the way for future generations, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Alia, and our final question is, what advice would you offer students who are interested in pursuing a career similar to yours? Well, I would say it sounds trite, but keep an open mind. I think that being open to new opportunities has been something very important to my life. And I think the moments where I found myself being more rigid or being more, you know, kind of stuck in a, this kind of idea of just like a rote routine uh, have been the least exciting for me professionally and personally. And I think that thinking about how your life experiences can inform who you want to be and who you are and going to, you know, being in Switzerland and having gone to a, you know, a Swiss boarding school, it does teach you that there's so much more to the world. You know, there's so much more to, you know, your friendships and being flexible with your friendships. And I find that, you know, some of my dearest friends, you know, I've been so lucky to see them so often uh, because we are open to that. You know, it's open to like, let's meet for a weekend. Let's meet this, let's make it work. Um, and of course I know it comes, you know, also from a position of privilege, but at the same time, finding a job that, you know, is able to do that for you. I think actually one of the most annoyed I've been with the current, you know, world is that we can't see each other. And now I understand that, you know, the climate emergency is real. And I, you know, I, I of course, you know, believe hugely in, in the need to change and, and to figure out that. But I want to say that I don't think travel should be sacrificed for that reason. I think that, in fact, we need to be meeting different people and opening our hearts and minds to cultures. And, you know, I was so heartened by, you know, the election. And it, you know, for me, feels like a turning point. Of course, we have this wonderful news about the hopefully, inshallah, the vaccine. Uh, and I think that, you know, perhaps we're, we're turning a corner and realizing that there are other ways of doing things and, and different cultures. And in fact, you know, in, in your professional life, it could be the same. You know, I was introduced to the art world through my friends in college, um, you know, reading one of my best friends. She was, as I've mentioned, she was, um, Dana was uh, doing art history, was studying art history. My other friend was from Basel and actually invited me to art Basel. It was <laughs> the summer of my freshman year and she said come see this like art thing that happens in my town and you're like what <laughs> and I still have that picture which I you know show often and now I've been working for our Basel for you know the longest of my life the 10 11 years now and, and it's really such a defining part of my life and, and my mother always laughs about my kind of love of Switzerland and Swiss companies and, and 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 all the rest and it's been such an important part of my life and community so for me finding a community has been really important but also being really open to different ways. I'm not an art historian. Yes, I now have a PhD in politics, but you know it's related to the art world. So my PhD is in fact on cultural diplomacy and it's in politics, but it is about the art world, it is about art. Uh, but at the same time, I'm not an art historian and I wouldn't necessarily consider myself you know, an academic in art. So I think you know, being able to describe yourself the way you wanna describe it and being okay being flexible. I like that. Thank you so much for sharing your journey and your insights with us. I really enjoyed having you on the podcast. If any of our listeners wish to continue this conversation, can they find you on LinkedIn? 
they can absolutely find me on LinkedIn and be in touch. And I'd be happy to talk to all of them and I hopefully meet all of them in real life. I hope so too. And if any of our listeners have any other questions about anything else they heard on the podcast, feel free to contact me at Carla at SwissLearning.com. Thank you. And until next time. Bye.